You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. In the mid-1600s, at the height of the Reformation, a lot of persecution happened to those who push against the tide of the current church structure. Many were persecuted for stepping out in faith. Even going to the wrong worship service could wind you up in jail. During that time, many were thrown in prison. And many notable uh, figures would go on from then to influence the church and the world in many ways. But with all of these figures who did great things during the Reformation, there's one figure in my mind that stands with all the rest. A Puritan man named John Bunyan. Now, despite having a super cool Puritan name, John Bunyan's impact would be extraordinary. You see, in his many stints in prison, John would write a book called The Pilgrim's Progress that would go on to impact the world for many centuries. Now, this book is basically a dream sequence narrated by this omniscient uh, narrator who is telling the story of a man named Christian who is journeying from the city of destruction on to the celestial city. Now, the book opens with Christian feeling this conviction for his sin. After reading a book called The Book in Hand, he realized that he was a sinner and in need of salvation. And he is weighed down by this terrible burden of his sin until he meets a man named Evangelist. And this evangelist calls him to leave the city of destruction and journey on to the celestial city. And Christian heeds his warning and flees from that city of destruction. Now, I'm sure as many of you have gathered, this is an allegorical story of the life of all Christians. Which means that this isn't anything revolutionary. He simply told what we all go through. He took the biblical account and he put it into a book. But as simple as it was, this book would go on to change the world. You see, it'd be translated into dozens and dozens of languages, sent out all over the world, and for over 200 years, it would be the second best-selling book next to the Bible. It would even influence notable figures like Mark Twain and uh, Charles Spurgeon and change their lives and the trajectory of their lives. You may be asking, what makes this book so impactful? And I think it is that simplicity, that simplicity that characterizes what we all go through, that the Christian life isn't easy, that this journey of following God can be hard. And that's what we're seeing in our text this morning. Now, we're not going through the journey of Christian. We are going through a journey of a man named Jacob. As God calls him out of the land of Haran and into the promised land. Now, you'll remember if you've been with us that over the last few weeks, we have seen Jacob as he's come to the land of Haran. Jacob originally came on this journey after his older brother Esau was trying to kill him. And when he came to Haran, he met up with his uncle Laban. And after marrying his, his daughters, Laban would go on to stay there for many years. In fact, he would be there for two decades. Now this morning as we hop into our text and we view the story of Jacob, we will see that it has now come time for Jacob to go home. God is going to call Jacob, and we'll see from our text this morning that it's not going to be easy. 
But along the way, we'll see how God uses the encounters that Jacob faces to push him forward to the promised land. And as we do so, we will see three ways that following God changes our relationship to the world. Our text this morning will be in Genesis chapter 31, and we will be going through the entire chapter. And I have to warn you, this is a long one. Now, with that said, we won't be going through every verse this morning, but I'll do my best to give you the whole context of what's going on in the book. And I encourage you to go on and, and read this later today if you haven't read it already. Now, that being said, let's go ahead and jump into our first point this morning. Point number one, following God reveals the bitterness of the world. Read with me in verses one to three. It says, now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's. And from what our father's was our father's, he gained all his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your father and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Now as we jump into the middle of our text, we find ourselves in the middle of a family drama that's been building for 20 years. Now you remember originally that when Jacob came to uh, Laban, he made a deal to work for Laban's daughter for 14 years of servitude. And after that point, Jacob intended to go home. But when Jacob was leaving, Laban convinced him to stay and to be hired on as a hired hand. For his wages, Jacob and Laban made a deal that Jacob would work for all the spotted sheep in Laban's flock. Now, this seemed like a really good deal for Laban because spotted sheep are pretty rare. But Laban forgot to calculate the fact that God had been blessing Jacob. And while Jacob's flock prospered over the next six years, it meant that Laban's flock decreased. Now we see in our text here this morning that Laban's sons are beginning to have an issue with Jacob. You see, the size of your flock back in those days directly equated your wealth. And a decreased wealth meant a decreased inheritance for Laban's two sons. So the implications we have here in our text is that Jacob has now become not only a threat to Laban, but also to his two young boys. So the situation is getting tense. This relationship that was once mutually beneficial has now become a point of contention and bitterness. But on top of that, we're also seeing that in verse 3, God is calling Jacob to leave the land of Laban and return to his father's house. And Jacob's situation is obvious. It's time for him to go. And we see here as we move forward that Jacob responds immediately with faith in verses 4 and 7. So, so Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard with, with favor as he did before, but the God of your father, uh, the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages these ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. Now if you were to continue to read through verse 14, you would see Jacob recount all the ways that, Jake, uh, that Laban attempted to swindle him and trick him and cut his wages short. Obviously Laban was a, a, a dirty dealing man. 
But what I want to point out here is, is not Laban's actions, it's Jacob's actions. You see, for the first time in all of Jacob's story, we see a sense of leadership that we didn't see before. You see, all throughout this journey with Jacob, he's been a rather passive man. Rather than stepping up and leading his family like he's supposed to, he's been falling back into the background and deciding not to lead. But here we're seeing a different man. Though he doesn't have to, he steps out and he gives his, his wives a choice to go with him. And, and that's a huge deal. Not just because it's showing a changed heart for Jacob. It's also giving Rachel and Leah a chance to respond in faith. You see, in our text, we are seeing that God is making Jacob into a people. And just like Jacob, God intends to include Rachel and Leah in this people. And what we have to understand is that just being in close proximity to God's people doesn't make you a part of God's people. And what that means for us is that just coming to church doesn't make you a Christian. You see, we all have the responsibility to respond in faith to God. If we don't respond in faith, we are not included in God's people. And that's the choice that Rachel and Leah have to make. They have to choose to leave everything they've ever known behind in order to follow the calling of God. And just like Jacob did, we see Rachel and Leah respond with the same sort of faithfulness in verses 14 to 16. It says, Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. Now we see here that the same forces that are driving Jacob out of Haran are also working on the hearts of Rachel and Leah. You see, we're seeing here in the text that they are also sensing the same sort of bitter relationship to their father that Jacob is feeling. At the same time, they also recognize the calling of God. They are realizing that they too have to respond in faith, and they do just that. This is a monumentous moment for the family that God is building. Not only is this Jacob's God, but now this is becoming the God of Rachel and Leah. But even here as we're seeing this wonderful act of faith by this family called by God, we're also going to see some issues as they begin to flee Laban's house. You see, while they're following in faith, we will see Jacob and Rachel clinging to aspects of their old life as they begin to exit the land of Haran. We see that in verses 17 to 21. It says, So Jacob arose and sent his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock all his property that he gained, the livestock and his possession that he'd acquired in Padam Aran, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face towards the hill country of Galilee. Now, as we read here, there's two things we learn right off the bat. Number one, Jacob decides to trick Laban rather than telling him he's leaving. And number two, Rachel, on her way out, steals her father's household gods. 
You see, what we're seeing here is both of these individuals clinging on to sin, even as they're walking in faith. Jacob is running from Laban out of fear, even though he knows that God has called him. Even though he's seeing God's power in his life, he is running away fearfully with his tail tucked between his legs. Rachel, on the other hand, is literally carrying her idolatry with her. Even though she's heard the voice of the God of creation, she thinks she needs the help of these little figurines that her dad carved. You see, the reality here is that Rachel and Jacob both are under this delusion that God needs needs their help to get them out of their old lives. And in doing so, they are carrying aspects of their old lives with them. When we look at this text and we see their example, what we need to understand is that when God calls you, he calls you to leave everything behind. God is not calling you to take some of your sin with you and and carry it on your shoulders. God wants you to lay down everything. And, And what we're seeing here in our text is that God is trying to stir up the bitterness of the world to reveal to them that God is better. God is showing them that this world that they think they need to cling so closely onto is not worth the fight. And later on, we'll see God confront these sins. But for now, what we need to understand in our first application this morning is that we need to lay down our whole lives in pursuit of God. You see, we each have sins that we are clinging onto. And the question this morning is not if you have sins you're carrying, it's since you have sins you're carrying. And the whole reality for us of the Christian life is a putting off and a putting on. We are constantly called to put off our old self, the self that was following after the world, and put on a new self that is pattering after the likeness of Jesus. We are called to constantly change and be transformed and be pushed into something new. Even that, if that means getting rid of things we don't want to. And I personally know there's times in my life when God has been asking me to give things up. I just didn't want to. I mean, I remember in my early 20s when I was coming back to faith and struggling with the party life. I used to hide myself in my dorm room on the weekend and shut the lights off. And just pretend I wasn't home. You see, I knew deep down if somebody invited me to go out to a party, I was going to go. And if I went, I was going to make bad choices. I was going to do things that God didn't desire of me. You see, I still had this temptation inside to keep on sinning. But over time, God changed and transformed my heart where all of those things feel like bitterness to me now. Those aren't things I desire anymore. But I needed time for God to work those things out of my heart. And as God changed me and shaped me and transformed me, just like the way he does all of us, I realized that there was people in my life who didn't like that. There was people who got upset that I wasn't doing the things I used to be doing. And sometimes when we change and conform to the image of God, people aren't going to like it. Which brings us to our second point this morning. Following God makes the world hostile. Now, we see in verses 22 to 25 that eventually Laban figures out that Jacob has fled. And even though Jacob had a three-day head start, Laban will catch up to him after the seventh day. 
And the text seems to be pretty clear as we move forward that Laban intends to do Jacob harm. But in the night, as, as Laban was chasing down Jacob, we learn that he has a dream. And in that dream, God warns him not to harm Jacob. So when he finally meets up with him, Laban is going to have to play nice. And we'll see this interaction here in verses 26 to 30. It says, And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven me away from my daughters, or driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent away you away with mirth and song and tambourines and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters for a well? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you long greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my household gods? Now, it seems pretty clear from Laban's response that he's furious. And as we've already noted, Laban seems to be uh, chasing down Jacob with ill intent. Though he plays it off like he's never income, he never intended to harm Jacob. But notice his words here in verse 29. He says, It is in my power to do you harm, but the God of your father spoke to me last night. When I was growing up, my brother used to say something like this to me. He used to say, You are so lucky mom is here. Basically, what Laban is saying is, if God wasn't here, I was going to mess you up. But rather than admitting what Laban was doing, he plays it off like he was in the right the whole time. And as we continue to witness Laban throughout the text, we'll see that he basically incarnates uh, the fool from the book of Proverbs. Of this fool, it says in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Basically, what we're seeing of Laban here is that in his own eyes, he's a righteous man and a loving father. But the reality is, he's neither. Throughout the text, we've seen him trade away his, his daughters and use them as commodities. He sold them away to Jacob in order to gain his own profit. And when he saw Jacob prosper, he tried to cut and steal his wealth. And now he's trying to make it seem like Jacob has stolen everything he has. Even though there was a clear deal in place that allowed Jacob to gain this wealth. No, the reality here is that Laban is a fool and he is assuming that everything Jacob has belonged to him. But as foolish, uh, but we are also seeing Jacob ask foolishly here in the text. You see, Jacob makes a false assumption. He assumes it could not be possible that anyone in his house could have stolen these little gods. And he even permits Laban to search his tents and kill anyone who might have stolen them, not knowing that Rachel was responsible for the act. And it seems like Rachel's in a pretty stuffed pot here. But we'll see in verses 34 to 35 that she thinks quickly. It says, now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel saddle and sat on them. Laban left, felt all about the tent, but he did not find them. And he said to her father, Let not my lord be angry that I cannot arise before you, for the way of the woman is upon me. So he searched the tent, but he did not find the household gods. 
Now, what we're seeing here is God beginning to address Rachel's sin of idolatry. You see, when Rachel left, she took these gods because she believed that they could protect her. And what these household gods are, these little carved figurines that were meant to protect the owner's household. But what we're seeing here in the text is Rachel having to protect these gods that were supposed to protect her. Uh, On top of that, this way that she's trying to protect them is super disgraceful. This is not the way you should treat gods. We see here her we see her here sitting on top of these gods and claiming that she's menstruating now i don't want to make anybody comfortable uncomfortable by mentioning menstruation but we have to understand that this is something that's extremely natural and it's okay for us to talk about it Uh, on top of that it's something we see here in the text and it's something that we need to address you see basically rachel is implying that she is covering these gods in human waste Something that we wouldn't think twice about throwing into the garbage. This is extremely defiling. Even if she's lying in this situation, even to imply this was to defile these gods. To say this sort of thing of the God of Israel was simply not something you would do. But what God is doing in this situation is showing Rachel that these gods are not just below her, But these gods are infinitely below the God who's calling her. You see, these gods have no power in this situation. It's the God who called her out of her homeland. The one who has been working on her heart, who is the only one who can protect her. And she's realizing now, here in the text, that these gods are powerless. But God isn't just confronting the sin of Rachel. He's also confronting the sins of Jacob. You see, in verse 36, we learn that Jacob is now forced to confront his uncle. It says there that then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. And then if you continue down through verse 41, you can see that Jacob calls out Laban for all of his sinful treatment. Now, let's remember who this is. This is Jacob. Throughout our whole text, Jacob has been a passive bystander. And any chance... uh, any sign of hostility, Jacob backed up and ran away. But we're seeing something different in Jacob. For the first time, Jacob is stepping up and speaking the truth. Rather than using lies and deceptions and trickery to try to get himself out of the situation, he's being honest. But on top of that, he's also giving credit to the God who called him. You see, just as Jacob is calling out Laban for his sinfulness, he's also going to give glory to God as the one who delivered him. Listen to what he says in verse 42. He says, The God of my father, the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac, had not been on my side. Surely you have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands, and he rebuked you last night. You see, in the face of certain hostility, Jacob is turning to God. Rather than backing down and and being passive, Jacob is stepping up and saying, it is the Lord who delivered me. You see, for the first time in Jacob's life, he is realizing that having God with him means that God will protect him. 
If God is on your side, it means that no matter what comes before you, no matter what hostility the world throws at you, he will deliver you. And that brings us to our second application for our second point this morning. Trust God in the face of hostility. You know, the reality is, if you are a follower of Christ, you will face hostility from the world. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. And the Bible doesn't tell us what kind of hostility we'll face, but the reality is it will happen. But we shouldn't view this hostility as a curse. In fact, Jesus says the exact opposite in Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. He says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who are before you. You see, what Jesus is pointing out here in this text is that persecution is a sign of the reward that we have in heaven. And the truth is that the world only hates us as Christians because they have rejected the truths of the gospel. They have turned down Christ. They have turned down the salvation that we are feeling. And they have a bitterness and a hostility because we are different than them. The world hates us because it hates Christ. And we shouldn't fear in the face of persecution and hostility because we can look to Jesus Christ who ultimately used all the hostility of the world to leverage into the salvation of millions. You see, Jesus faced hostility on the cross, your hostility on the cross, so that we could be delivered from the circumstances of our lives. And even if the hostility of this world means death in this physical world, we can be certain that God will deliver us to our heavenly city, the celestial city that John Bunyan talks about in his book. We can be sure that God will bring us to the promised land. You see, Jesus has given us that guarantee. No matter what the world throws at us, we will make it home. Because ultimately, we have to realize this morning that our home, it's not on this earth. Our home is not in this world. God is calling us somewhere different. And as we walk in Christ, we will feel him push us in a different direction of this world. Which brings us to our third and final point this morning. Following God separates us from the world. Now in verse 43, we see Laban give an exasperated response. And here's what he says. He says, the daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks, my flocks. And all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day? For these my daughters are for my children who are born to them. Now, what we're seeing in Laban here is another sense of foolish delusion. Now, once again, he's in, implying that he's this loving father who only cares about his daughter. But the text advises otherwise. In fact, his own daughter, daughter said that, they, that he sold them away basically into slavery and he ate up all of their wealth and devoured their money. You see, but what Laban is doing here is trying to save face. 
He's trying to present himself as a righteous man who only loves for his family and only longs for what Jacob stole away from him. But the reality is here that he's even acknowledged that he's been blessed through Jacob. You see, back in chapter 30, verse 27 to 28, Laban said this. He says, if I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. You see, basically Laban is acknowledging the Abrahamic blessing. That anyone who blesses him will be blessed and anyone who curses him will be cursed. Well, Jacob has been in Haran, Laban has felt the blessings of Jacob's presence. And rather than blessing Jacob in return, he chose to curse him. And now he's feeling the weight of those cursing coming back on his shoulder. Though he knows that God has blessed him, he is not acknowledging that fact, and he's even doing everything he can to push Jacob in the other direction. And we see him do that here in the text by making a covenant. And we see that laid out here in verses 44 to 46. He says, come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be the witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Now, upon hearing Laban's request, Jacob hops into action, and he sets up this pillar. Now, we've seen a pillar like this before in the book of Genesis. That was all the way back in chapter 28. You remember back there, God met Jacob in a dream, and he met him in a covenant relationship. He promised to bless Jacob and be with Jacob, and Jacob set up this pillar to remind him of what God had promised. Now, this pillar in the text is acting in the same way. It is a reminder of the covenant. But this covenant, unlike the covenant between God and Jacob, is not meant to further a relationship, but meant to separate a relationship. And we see that as Laban goes on in his request in this covenant, in verses 50 to 53. He says, If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. And then Laban said to Jacob, See the heap and pillar which I have set between you and me? The heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over the heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Now, once again, I feel like I'm beating a dead horse, but we are seeing the same pattern in Laban over and over again. Once again, he's presenting himself as a man who only cares for his daughters. He only desires that they not be harmed or be taken advantage of, even though he's done that over and over again. And he's also setting down his boots and saying, Jacob, you can never come back to this land. You see, in, in verse 42, 52, we see that this pillar also serves as a boundary marker. And for each of these two individuals, once they go their other way, based on the terms of their, their covenant, they were not allowed to come back past this, this boundary marker. So what, base, uh, what Laban is, is basically doing is cutting himself off from the covenant blessings that are associated with Jacob. 
Laban has already confessed that he's been blessed by Jacob, but rather than repenting of his sins and turning towards these blessings, he is pushing these blessings away. And the funny part about this interaction is every term that he sets up in this covenant are things that Jacob is already doing. He's telling Jacob to leave the land as Jacob is already going. I mean, Laban's like that boss who tries to fire you once you're already quitting. Well, you can't quit because you're fired. Well, great, I was going anyways. See, what's clearly happening in the text is that Laban is cutting himself off from Jacob. But more than that, God is already cutting, him, cutting Jacob off from Laban. You see, the reality is, is that Laban is everything that Jacob would have aspired to be had he not known the Lord. Laban is that selfish, deceitful patriarch that Jacob seemed to be becoming back when we first met him back in chapter 25. Jacob is everything, Jacob is everything that Laban was... Jacob is like Laban in every single way. The only difference between Jacob and Laban is that Jacob met the Lord. You see, God intervened on Jacob's behalf and came into his life and changed his heart. God called him out of his old lifestyle and into a new lifestyle. And because of that, Jacob is becoming something new. Even in the week-long events of our text, we are seeing a change in Jacob. Well, we saw him originally running away from Laban like a dog with his tail tucked between his legs. Now we see him standing in confidence. He is standing before Laban with his head held high, knowing that God has protected him. You see, God has proved that he is with him. And now he knows that he doesn't need to be that man anymore. He doesn't have to be Laban. And God has cut off any opportunity that, that Jacob has to go back to his old lifestyle by making this covenant. And for us this morning, as we witness Jacob's actions, we have to realize that God is calling us to a better life. God is not calling to you to something lesser. He's calling you to something greater. And what we learn from Jacob in their text, in our final application this morning, is that when you follow Christ, do not turn back. See, that's what Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, verse 62. He says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. You see, Jesus' points illustrates that we can't have our feet in two different worlds. We can't love the world and love God also. When God calls us, he intends for us to leave every single thing behind and to not turn back to the lives that we used to live. And I have to admit to you this morning that I constantly fall under the temptation of looking back to my old life and wish that I could relive moments, even if I could make things just a little bit better. I find myself turning back and hoping that I could go back and do things over again. But what I have to realize and what we have to realize this morning is that our hope doesn't rest in the past. Our hope rests in eternity. We are being called forward to a hope that is beyond anything that this world can offer. We are called to not turn back. And all in all, as we round out Jacob's story this morning, 
We are seeing a man who has been bogged down in essential slavery for years. Though he came to Jacob's land under good terms, we find him living under bitterness and hostility. And when Jacob finally had the opportunity to leave his land, Laban tried to track him down with ill intent. And though Jacob intended to heart him, God rescued him and despised Laban's gods in the process. You see, what's happening here in our text is basically Jacob's exodus. This is a pattern we, see, we will see God pick up many generations later for the nation of Israel. You see, they too would come to a land that at first was peaceful. You see, when Israel came to Egypt, they were welcomed in with open arms and God would grow them and prosper them. But as Israel prospered, Israel became jealous. They start to harm Israel by throwing them into slavery. And when slavery didn't serve to break them down and beat them up, they made a decree that all of their sons would be thrown into the Nile. And when God saw the bitterness and the hostility of Egypt, God would call this nation out, defiling the gods of Egypt in the process and delivering them up to the promised land. And for us this morning, we too are on a similar journey. You see, we too are on a journey that is calling us out of the hostility of the world, out of the bitterness, and into a better world. Into a promised land that has been secured for us by the blood of Christ. And there will be hardship. There will be struggle. There will be hostility. And I think that's what makes John Bunyan's The Pilgrim Progress so impactful. You see, when Bunyan wrote his book, he didn't pull any punches. He displayed the real reality of the Christian life, the highs and lows, the fallings, the temptations, everything that bears down upon us, everything that seeks to break us and control us and drag us back down into this world. He called the world what it is. See, the truth is this morning that the world will seek to destroy you. But we can have confidence this morning. Because while the world has come after you, it has already come after Christ. When Jesus came to this world, he faced the bitterness and the hostility of the world that should have been on our shoulders. Jesus walked in the destruction and the sin and the brokenness that should have been on our shoulders, and he bore it all on the cross. And Jesus, unlike us, was able to overcome the brokenness that this world had to offer. And he was able to despise death and destroy sin that we could be confident that no matter what comes our way, Jesus will overcome. We have the hope of Jacob this morning that though we are sinners who constantly fall under the sin of temptation, We can be different from this world. We have a hope that no matter what happens, even if death comes our way, we will overcome. But if you are here this morning and you are like Laban, living in your self-righteous judgment of yourself, 
living under the delusion that you have done nothing wrong before God, you have to understand that nothing you can do in this world will ever stack up to God's holiness. And if you continue in your sin and self-righteous opinion, you will forever be condemned with the city of destruction. You see, this world is going to be destroyed. Everything here will be destroyed. And if you are stuck in this world, you will be brought under the condemnation of your sin. But there's hope this morning. You see, even if you are living under the sins of Laban, Jesus is calling you. Just like all of us here this morning, if you are willing to turn away from your old life and follow Jesus, Jesus will forgive you. And you can have the hope that no matter what sins are in your past or in your future, you too will make it to that celestial city. And for all of us this morning, we can rejoice knowing that Christ has done it all. He has secured our victory. He has guaranteed the life that we will live in eternity. And we can rejoice and hope at the coming of the glory of the Chosen One, of Jesus Christ. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you for the grace that we have in your son, Jesus. That you would send him to bear our sins on the cross. Though we were undeserving, unworthy of everything you have to offer, you sent Jesus to die for us. In Jesus, we have a hope that is eternal. A hope that will never end. A hope that will someday bring us to the promised land. That celestial city that heavenly highway when we will live with Jesus forever. And we rejoice in that hope this morning, the hope of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.